Father, we thank you today for your love. We thank you for your presence. Thank you for your spirit that leads us and guides us. And we think of Matt and the other adults that are leading the, the high schoolers this weekend. We pray that that time would be one of, of great spiritual growth for all involved. Thank you for the middle schoolers that they're doing the same kind of things this weekend. We just thank you that as I gave my life to you when I was in middle school, we pray that this will be a life-changing time for them. We pray for the woods as they go forth to a new place, maybe an old place, that you would just uh, continue to lead and guide them. We thank you that you do that. We thank you that uh, you will help them to flourish in, the, in their new location. And as Lord, as I share the word today, just give me the ability to speak clearly and, and uh, truthfully and apply it to our hearts by your spirit, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. There are moments in our life, maybe quick little moments, where we have to answer a question. And the answer to that question can change the course of our life. For example, you have this daredevil friend, and he says, hey, you want to join us? Or maybe that special person says, will you marry me? can change the course of our life. There's also questions that are not in the moment, but things that we contemplate. They're lifelong and life-altering. Things like, should I get married? Or should I move to Tennessee? Or Walnut Creek? Well, there's a very important question about God that's like that. And I want, I want us to think about it today, because if we get that answer wrong, we might continually struggle to find fulfillment and happiness in our life as a Christian. So here's the question. What is God's goal for your life? What is God's goal for your life? What is it that God wants most for you? What is God working toward every day in your life? What is it that he wants because he knows it will be the best thing for you? You might say, well, there's lots of things he wants, and that is very true. So maybe I should say, what's the greatest or primary goal for you? I'll give you a moment to think about that. Because that's our subject today. And I almost hope that you don't agree with me right now, because I didn't always agree with this. But understanding this has changed my life, and it continues to shape my walk with God every day. So I hope it encourages you. So I won't make you wait any longer. What is God's greatest goal for your life? To love him. To love him with your whole being. To love him with everything that you are. To love him with your, all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. Did you get the same answer? Well, maybe you read the, the bulletin, or maybe you listened to Matt. I hope you had that same answer, but if you didn't, I hope today encourages you. So let's look at this together. Our passage today is so familiar to us that we probably don't expect any real aha moments, but rather a solid reminder of the things that God has already taught us. And I expect that'll be true for most of you, but I hope for some of you that your love for God will be kind of set free by his word today. Let's read that familiar passage. This is a continuation of our, our, our um, uh, study through Matthew. Turn to Matthew 22, verse 34 to 40. And let's read that. Matthew 22, 34 to 40. When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment of the law? And he said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and prophets. Let's review the context. So Matt's been doing a great job of taking us through the, the Gospel of Matthew. And we are right now in the middle of Passion Week. It started with the triumphal entry, then Jesus cleanses the temple, then the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, I should say, question his authority. Again, trying to trap him, to discredit him. But he silences them again with one of his own questions about John the Baptist and who sent him. Then Jesus shares three parables clearly 
aimed at, the, at these leaders that are challenging him. Each parable illustrates their disregard for God's word and their outright evil uh, that they were perpetuating on the very people of God that, that he had given them to lead in faith and righteousness. So growing in their fear and their hatred of Jesus, they try three more times to trip him up and get him to say something that would get him in trouble or discredit him. First, the Pharisees try to trip him up over paying taxes, and that doesn't work. Then the Sadducees, we saw last week, try to get him in trouble over marriage in heaven, which there isn't marriage in heaven. And today, the Pharisees take that one last attempt. So starting in verse 34, let's look at the passage again. Verse 34, but when the Pharisees heard that he has silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. So the Pharisees get together with a question that from what I can gather, they did not agree on themselves at all. They had a great disagreement about what the greatest commandment was. So maybe they thought that, you know, Jesus would pick one and they'd, he would be at odds with some of the religious leaders or maybe with Rome. The other interesting thing about this is that the Pharisees particularly claimed to be strict followers of Moses and the law. And instead of contradicting Moses, which would have really gotten him in trouble, Jesus quoted Moses. In Deuteronomy 6, Moses is giving the law to the people before they enter the land. And verse 4 through 7 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Sound familiar? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your might. And these words I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and, and shall take talk with them, uh, talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. That was Moses. The very passage Jesus quoted pointed out what the leaders of Israel had been failing to do. They clearly did not love the Lord their God. They were actually lovers of self. They were judgmental of lesser humans and proud of it. We see it again and again. And in the next chapter, Jesus speaks directly to the scribes and Pharisees, and woe. Literally, woe. He, he, he speaks seven woes. And it is, I'll let Matt fill you in on that in the future. So he speaks directly to them in this, in this situation as well. So that's the context. Let's get to these commands. Verse 37, Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. You may be familiar with the Greek word agape, or agapo, agape, sorry, agape. Anyway, which is the type of love that's used here. Um, as opposed to phileo, which you're also probably familiar with, we, we call it the, the love of brotherly love, like the city of Philadelphia. Um, brotherly love, though, is primarily related to our feelings and our emotions. Whereas agape is a word that is related to what's driven by our will, by our mind. Uh, it's where we produce things like self-sacrifice and dedication. Thus, that we're commanded to love the Lord like that with all our heart, so, our, all our soul, and all our mind. Now, when Mark quotes that, he adds, he includes the statement, and all your strength. So today we could focus on each individual aspect, heart, mind, soul, strength, and think about their differences. And that would be helpful as we meditated on the different aspects of, of ourselves and how we love with each part. But today, let's just say that we're to love God with everything we are and everything that we have. God deserves nothing less, right? In fact, uh, he deserves more than we could ever give. So we're thankful that he leads us in that. So let's go back to my question. Why do I say that God's greatest goal for us is to love God? Well, our next verse sheds some light on this. Verse 38 says, this is the great and first commandment. And the NIV translated, this is the first and greatest commandment. So you see little differences in how it's expressed. So it's the first because it's primary and it's foundational. In a sense, it's the source of all obedience, right? Obedience to all the other commands that will follow. And it's the greatest because it supersedes all of the commands. 
No obedience comes before loving God. You could say that that's also why it's first and also the greatest. And think about this, true love and true, I'm sorry, true obedience comes from a heart of love. That's what he wanted the, the Pharisees to be reminded of from Moses. For example, little Johnny says, I'll do it, but I don't want to. I won't like it. Not exactly what a parent wants long term, right? You want them to, to, to obey from their heart because they love you and they want to please you. God has always been after our hearts because if we truly love him, everything else flows out of that love. It means that we want to know him. We want to please him. We want our desires and our decisions to honor him. So this, is the, this great and first reality is also seen as it relates to the second commandment. Look at verse 39. It says, and the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and prophets. When it says the second is like it, uh, it's, it's more than just that it's another command about love. Really, it's that love, that, that this commandment is of the same mind as the first commandment. It's this commandment's born of the first commandment. And they're connected at their core. You can't separate them. Um, you could say that the second command is the outflow of the first and greatest command. In fact, if you try to disconnect them, you'll find a scripture standing in contrary to your thoughts. When it says, love your neighbor, uh, I think that's also significant that he doesn't just say, hey, love everybody. Because who's my neighbor? It's a real person. It's someone present in my life. Uh, you may have heard the saying, I love all mankind. It's people I have a hard time with. My neighbor is someone I know. It's someone that I might have to struggle to love, right? But it does include everybody, including our enemies. Look at Matthew 5:43. You've heard it said that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That was a common teaching. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your Father in heaven. That's who our Father in heaven is. That's how he loves, which we are very thankful for because we were his enemies, right? So we're commanded to love God and others. And verse 40 says that all the law and prophets hang on these two commandments. Here's the, here's the issue. If you're fulfilling these two commands, you really don't need any more. The reason we have so many laws is because we don't treat each other the way we should. Right? So we keep up making up more laws. If you're loving God and neighbor with your whole being, we fulfill the law and the prophets. Look at Romans 13, 8. It says, Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other command are, are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is fulfilling the law. I started out by saying that the greatest goal for us is that we love God, that we love him more and more every day. And I think to see this more clearly, we should look at what it means to love God. I don't know if you've thought about that lately, uh, but this week reminded me to do that. What does, God lo what does loving God look like? How can we tell if we're truly loving God? Well, simply put, and maybe overly simple, we trust him and we obey him. Loving God is trusting him and obeying him. Loving God starts with trusting him and believing what he says. And then as we trust and believe him more and more, we will please him more and more. We will obey what he says. So it starts with faith being born again, truly being his child. So loving God starts with being saved from our sin. Now, when we're born, we are all children of Adam, born in sin, born with a sinful nature. We're spiritually dead in our sin. No one starts out loving God. Rather, we start out rejecting him and his word, his laws. Look at, back to Isaiah 53, 6 says, 
We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid, him, laid on him the iniquity of us all. And then in Romans, he repeats that and gives a, a, a longer discussion of, of, of that, of our sin and how we all have sinned and fallen short of his glory. So the heart of all sin really is not loving God, or better said, we all hated God. So he provided a savior to pay for that sin and therefore provide a way for us to love God. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us, right? And we love him because he first loved us. That's right. So first he made a way for us to be given for not loving him. But in saving us, he also gave us the ability to love him. He gave us the ability or the, the capacity to love him. When God raised us up in Christ to new life, he put the Holy Spirit in us, and it's by the Spirit in us that we even have the ability and the desire to love. Look at Romans 5, 5. It says, And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who, he, who has been given to us. And when you look at Galatians 5, 22, about the fruit of the Spirit, the first aspect of what the Spirit produces in our life is love. Upon salvation, the Holy Spirit indwells us, and His power gives us the ability, to, the ability and the desire to love God and others, that agape, sacrificial love. This reminds us that loving God is not something we can produce ourselves in our own strength. It is the work of the Holy Spirit. And it's produced by him in our life as we submit to his training. So loving God with all our heart and our soul and our mind starts with trusting God. By faith, believing in who he is and what he said. Now, once we know and trust God, we are also given the ability to love God through the Holy Spirit. So it starts out with trusting him. But what about obey? How does that work? Well, repeatedly, God said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. You obey me. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. First John addressed loving God and my brother. Let's turn to First John and look at a few passages. And I'll warn you, there's a lot of scripture here, but hopefully it'll be the best thing for us today. Turn to First John, starting in chapter 2, verse 3 and following. It says, and by this we know we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way which he walked. When we trust what he says we will do what he says. And when we love him, we want to please him. And go down to chapter 3, uh, 1 John 3, starting in verse 5. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, do not oh, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Verse 8, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. Verse 10, by this it is evident that we are children of God, and who are the children of the devil? Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who is, does not love his brother. We see the, the tie there to loving one another. This is a tough passage if you think about it, because we're all sinners. We all still sin. We all still working daily to overcome that sin. But you see the relationship between our love for God and our disdain for sin, our desire to live a righteous life as he's lived. So if we love God, we take his view of sin and seek to practice righteousness. 
We also see that loving our neighbor is inseparable from loving God. Uh, turn to 1 John 4, continuing down in 1 John. 1 John 4, starting in verse 7. And as we read these verses, I want us to notice how loving God and loving others is joined together. They're inseparable. How loving your neighbor not only comes from loving God, but it's the evidence of knowing and loving God. 1 John 4, starting in verse 7. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who has been born of God and knows God, um, oh, I'm sorry, everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. Verse 12, no one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. This is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us of his spirit. And then one last one, turn, go down to, in chapter 4 to verse 19 to 21. 1 John 4, 19. We love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God, yet hates his brother or sister, is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother or sister whom they have seen, cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command, anyone who loves God, must also love their brother and sister. So we love God because he first loved us and gave us that faith and the Holy Spirit. And by the power of the Spirit, we can love him. This is seen as we obey him and love others. And remember, Jesus is our perfect example, right? And we should imitate him. We should live as he lived. That's, that's the standard. Um, as he sacrificed for us, we follow his example, and then we sacrifice for others. Consider his humility. I'll turn with me to Philippians 2, Philippians 2, verse 1 and following. Philippians 2, 1. Therefore, if any of you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Verse five, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Here, listen to this description. Jesus, who being very, in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. Think about that. Jesus considered you above himself. He gave up everything. He humbled himself to come down in obedience to the Father. His love was sacrificial, patient, kind, compassionate, forgiving. And we are called to live as he lived and as he gave himself up. So just for fun, here's a great spiritual exercise. Write out and consider all the ways that he loves you. Just write them out and look at them. And then picture how can you love others the way he loves you? I'm sure that would be a blessing if he did that. Okay, we know that we are to love God with all that we are. And from what we also know, we're to even love our enemies. So what does it look like to grow in love? How do we get better at it? And that's where I wanna focus now as we finish up. Uh, it's not, I'm not done yet, but <laughs> that's where I wanna focus on. How do we grow in love? Because we all know that we're supposed to love God and love others. 
How do we grow in our daily lives in our love for God and therefore our love for our neighbor? Let me share what's probably made the most profound difference in my own life. So it's a bit of a testimony and a bit of a, an encouragement. Uh, it's what's taken these things that we've been talking about and it's helped me to actually do them and grow in doing them. So let me start this way. Let me ask you a question. What do we love? What do we love? Primarily, we love what benefits us in some way. I chose my wife, Tammy. I chose to love her and wanted to spend my life with her because I knew I couldn't live without her. I knew that she would fill in my life the things I wanted. I wanted love, understanding, some fun, and a family. I chose to give up all others and love her because of the benefit it would bring me. Now, it's true, we do love people or things that bring us hardship. That's part of life, and it's one of the best ways to love and sacrifice. Uh, maybe it's a friend. Maybe it's our own children. Or more recently, maybe it's our favorite football team. But generally, it's easy to love what brings us good things, as we think of them, and hard to love what brings us pain. So what about God? Now, we know that God loves us with a perfect and everlasting love. He brings us more benefit than we could ever ask for or imagine. But what if we have circumstances in our life, and in those circumstances, we don't know that God is loving us? For example, what if we expect God's love to look like a new job? Or we expect his love to look like healing from a disease? Or we expect his love to look like finding $10. But what if actually God love, loving us looks like getting a disease or getting a flat tire or losing $1,000? I started with that question today, what's God's, what is God's goal for your life? What is God working toward in your life every day? What is it that he wants because he knows it will be the best thing for you and here's the point. Because he loves you, God wants you to, to love him with everything you have. So he is working faithfully in your life to help you. But what if we don't understand how he's doing that? I believe that we often miss him or worse, become bitter toward him. For example, and these are, think about these things and we'll talk about them some more. Maybe you've been told that your hardship, your troubles, your trials are just an attack from the devil and we just need to get together and pray against the enemy. Or maybe it's just bad luck. Or maybe it's because we live in a fallen world and bad people are going to do bad things. Or maybe no matter what the reason you have troubles, you're told if you just have enough faith and we just have enough people pray for it, God will fix it. Now, I've heard all of those things in one form or another too many times, and some of them from myself in the past. So what do I believe now? Does the devil attack us? Certainly, yes. He constantly does what? He constantly lies to us. But he can't touch you apart from God's permission. Just read Job again and look at carefully how it started. Is your trouble just bad luck? No. God is orchestrating circumstances to meet his goals for your eternity and your good. Do we live in a fallen world and are people going to do bad things? Of course. But no evil can come into my life if it is not part of his perfect plan for my life and for the growing of my faith. God told us that we would have troubles, but he also told us that he's overcome this world and that in the tribulation, we would what? Have peace and joy. Look at John uh, 16, 33. John 16, 33. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. So how does that work? 
Does the world give us trouble and then he takes it away and therefore we have peace? Think of something you see around us all the time in the natural world. For example, if you hired a coach for millions of dollars to train your professional team, well, maybe more like you hired a guy at the gym to, to train you. What do you want from that trainer? What do you want from them? Well, hopefully you have a common goal that you're working toward together and you're working together to reach that goal. So when the training hurts, anybody been there? Maybe it's the next day when you can't already walk. When the training hurts, you know that the trainer is helping you meet your goal. Therefore, you appreciate him. You might hate him at the same time, but you appreciate him. What about God? He's our perfect trainer. So how does he train us? How does he help us love him more and more every day? Is that flat tire reminding us to trust him? Or is it, as we sometimes say, he was just helping me not be in a bad accident up the road? Well, think about that. Does God need a flat tire to keep you safe? Here's the point. The flat tire is the training session. The flat tire is God loving you and giving you an opportunity to believe him when he says, fix your eyes on him and give thanks for who he is and what he's doing in your life to train you. He says, I will give you peace that makes no sense in the natural world, a peace that passes understanding because it is in this physical world, those things are only bad. They're only a hardship. Now, every parent and every teacher, we've got a, quite a few parents and teachers here, if you're a good parent or a good teacher, you will test those that you care for because you want them to succeed. Imagine if your math teacher all through high school talked about algebra and talked about calculus but never tested your understanding of it. Imagine getting to college and finding out that they did you no favor. Now you're just lost. It's hard to believe, but I was an honor student in high school, barely at times, but I got to wear the sash when, at graduation. Imagine my surprise when I took the entrance exam for college English, and I was placed in what we affectionately called bonehead grammar and composition. Even with the test they gave me in high school, I was deficient. I didn't really know how to handle it. But that beginner's English class was one of my favorite because it, it took um, something that I saw as a deficiency and that teacher was working with me in partnership. In fact, I enjoyed that class so much I took advanced grammar and composition the next year. Because God loves us better than any teacher or parent. He trains, he trains us and he tests us to see if our faith and love are growing. He puts us in situations every day to help us see him in those situations and therefore love him. Situations that call us to trust and obey. So here's the question for all of us. Do we share God's goal for us? Have we signed up to be trained? We will all be tested every day in many ways. Some days, just small irritations. Those are tests. And other days will be terrible news or loss. Both are God training us to trust him. Both are God giving us an opportunity to obey him. When I learned that, I had a choice. And then when I do obey, it reinforces my faith in him. When I see the choice and I choose to obey him, I see the reward for that, and it reinforces my faith. So we ask ourselves today, do I continue to pursue my goals, or do I make God's goal my goal? When we've accepted Christ as our Savior, what did we sign up for? That's a very important question, because Jesus did not hide the fact that he required our complete allegiance. Jesus called us to turn from our own way and follow him. Think about how he called the disciples and others when he called them to follow him. And what he said to the rich young ruler. 
and what he said about suffering for his namesake. He was not shy about what it meant to turn from our life to his life. We signed up to be transformed, to be trained to grow in our faith, our faith in him and our obedience to him. What changed my life was understanding that God is working every day to help me see him and trust him. And in love, he tests my faith in him and what he has said. And in the moments and the days when I share that goal and I expect him to be that perfect trainer, I see his love in the testing. And I love him for helping me achieve my goal. Many of us are familiar with James uh, 1, cha uh, chapter 1, verse 2 to 4. Turn there with me to James 1, 2. A familiar passage for most of us. It says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. I want to be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But do I accept the testing as the training plan? In our head, we know that God will test our faith. But when he faithfully does, do we always see him in the test? Or do we just see that jerk who offended me? This is not easy, is it? In fact, it's not even possible without the Spirit of God, is it? Do I see an opportunity to trust God and receive peace? Or do I just get angry? Um, I ask this uh, because it was not long ago that I almost always missed God in those moments. Sometimes if it was a big enough hardship, I would go to God and realize that he's helped me grow in my faith. And, and, um, but often in the little irritations, I didn't consider God at all. They just came, I was irritated, and I went on. Thankfully, because of his, his faithful training, I am seeing my responses to those tests changing. I live up Valley Vista. It's about two miles from town, and that road is not made for passing. Uh, because I need it, apparently, God regularly puts a slow vehicle in front of me, especially when I'm in a hurry. Ever been there? Uh, the other pedal, please, the other pedal. <laughs> But because of these regular training sessions, I now usually, not always, but usually respond by saying, oh, I see you, God, and you have my schedule in your hands. Even if I'm late, I can trust you with that. And I give thanks for that reminder. And I give thanks for reminding me enough to change me. It was a great blessing when my daughter, who rode around with me for about eight years as she was my assistant, one day told a family gathering that she was so thankful that she saw her dad change. That gave me goosebumps. I hadn't even really noticed it so much, but she did, because she saw how I responded to the road, and she saw that changing because of God's training. God wants to bring us great blessings, but if we don't understand how he is loving and blessing us, it can be very hard to love him completely. Here's what I'm getting at with this. If we don't understand how God loves us, we might wrongly think of him and what he's doing. If we misunderstand his promises, we conclude that he's not faithful, that he's not loving us, and really struggle with that. How many people do you know have walked away from God because they thought he promised to do something and he didn't do it? Maybe they thought he would always save them from their difficulties, but he didn't. Maybe he thought that grandma was going to live and she didn't. Let me give you a common scenario like that. Mary's friend April fought cancer for years. Everyone rejoiced in God's faithfulness when she went into remission. But when it came back later and she died, Mary no longer felt she could trust God because he was no longer true to his promises. On the other hand, April knew that God's love included the testing and increasing of her faith and that he had not actually promised to heal her in this world. She died grateful and full of faith and love for her loving father. She understood that God was preparing her for eternity in the most loving way by testing and growing her faith. 
This in turn grew her love for God because she understood that. So how did April face cancer and her death full of faith and gratitude? How do we get there? Well, the, God's word has told us that too. First, like we talked about, we must be born again. Uh, we can't love God if we've not been restored to a right relationship uh, with him through Jesus, his son. Uh, remember, to love God is to trust and obey him. So without faith, without being born again, we have no, we have no beginning. Okay, so if we, do, if we don't see that love for God and others growing in our life, we really should start by asking ourselves, have I submitted my whole heart to God? And if you're not sure, ask him, go to him. He's, he's faithful to show you what's in your heart. But once we're born again, God has given us many ways to grow, right? We grow through prayer, talking to him. We grow through fellowship as we share with one another our walk with God and what he's doing in our lives. We grow through reading and studying and digesting the word. We, we gain knowledge of him and his attributes um, and his work in this world and in our hearts, right? And that leads me to the next and maybe the most practical principle growing, uh, for growing more and more in love with our Heavenly Father. And that is that we need to apply the word of God that we've learned to those moments of our day, to unpack those circumstances with the word, with truth. What does a mature believer do? They've trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. What does that look like? For instance, what would it look like if every time you faced a choice, you clearly knew what choice was right and what choice was wrong? Do you think you might make more right choices if, you, if that was clear to you? Husbands, imagine every time your wife made a comment or asked a question, you knew exactly the right thing to say. No more deer in headlights. Uh, even better, what if we knew what would please God in every moment? What is good, what is good and what is evil? Imagine never looking back and saying, what was I thinking? Why didn't I see that? And here's one of my favorite passages about this. Let's look at Hebrews chapter 5. 11 to 14, Hebrews 5. He says, about this, I have much, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. And here's the verse I'm so, so taken by and affects me so much. But solid food is for the mature. For those who, who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good and evil. How do we get there, or at least get closer and closer to that perfect place? Well, look back at verse 14 again and see if you catch it. But solid food is for the mature for those who have had their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good and evil. So what was it that we do? We practice constantly. Constant practice, constant use of the word of God. And what does that look like? What does it look like to constantly use the word of God? Does it mean I, I uh, hit people over the head with it or I wake up and read five chapters every morning and go off with my day? Well, those might be things that, well, the reading part might be good. But let me give you an example. By God's mercy, I can only think of a handful, maybe a couple handfuls of times, when I lost my cool and expressed my anger outwardly. I remember the last time very clearly. I could give you plenty of reasons why I unloaded on this person, but in the end, none of that mattered. What mattered was I behaved badly. I did not please God, and I did not please my fellow man. I made the evil choice and raised my voice and recounted the ways that this person had disrespected me. It was obvious that I needed to go to the Lord and his word and find the lies that I had told myself to justify these actions. And then I needed to go to the truth that would correct my thinking, that would renew my mind, that would prepare me for the future. 
So some examples. One of the lies I found was that I was, in a sense, believing that God was not taking care of my needs. And because this person wasn't doing what I wanted them to do, they, that wasn't taking care of my needs. But the lie about God was what he was doing. So I went to the scripture and I wrote out verses that told me the truth about God's love and how he takes care of my needs. Uh, I did not control my anger, so I wrote out and considered James 1, 19 and 20. It says, know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. I needed to hear that. I needed to meditate on that. I need to be reminded of that. And I obviously had not blessed with the words of my mouth, so I went back to a verse I knew very well but didn't practice that day, which was Ephesians 4, 29 and 30. It says, Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what's helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God from, with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Do you see the process? I took a failure, a pretty big failure on my part. And I didn't just say, Lord, forgive me, and so-and-so forgive me. There was a training process that God wanted to put me through. He wanted to renew my mind. And in the end, I gave thanks that he was training me and that he had the power to change me. And I hope that the next time I'm even close to that kind of situation, I'll remember those verses sooner. The constant use started with applying the truth to myself and the situation. Every time I have a situation where my, I need to control my tongue and I repeat the truth to myself, I have a greater ability to actually obey that command because it's now seated in my heart. And in the process, it reminds me of God and his goodness because he wants good things for me. He wants me to be complete, lacking nothing. And if I had that verse in my mind a bit earlier, I might have spared myself and other people a bad situation, a bad choice. Okay, what about when I'm on the receiving end of wrong by someone else? What do I do with that? Well, they sinned, but now I am very much tempted to sin as well. Anger, revenge, gossip, so many more ways after the sin that they committed that I can come up with in my flesh. But instead, I need to go to the word, see the lies and the truth about God and how to please him. That's the constant use. Now I have this situation. I need to go back to the word with that situation. It's that constant practice that helps me repent and trains me to be ready to face the similar situation in the future. Maybe in five minutes, maybe in five days. Okay, what about another situation? What about bad luck? quote, unquote. Am I going to forget that God is loving me in that situation? Or am I going to go to the Lord and his word and train myself to distinguish the good response or the evil response? This week, the world entered a season of war with the invasion of Ukraine. We, sh we should indeed be praying for God's intervention, especially for the believers on on both sides of any conflict, there's a, a great deal of opportunity to pray for them. But we also need to find the truth to renew our minds about who is God in war? Who is God in this tragic situation? Who is God in my life, in my life and my family? Um, you know, what does this bring up in me? Fear, anger, hatred? What does God want to use this for in my life? He does not waste anything. This did not surprise him. This is not something that he didn't notice or didn't know. Now I warn you that your flesh does not want to do this. And I'm far from consistent in this spiritual discipline. My sinful nature does not want to give up any ground to my spirit. And I can't change it in my own, my own power. I can't just decide I'm going to change my, my ways. Rather, we, we all need the Holy Spirit's power. And his power will increase every time you take the time to go to him, to go to his word. He'll change you. He will change you. 
I can't do it, but he can. It's often said, it's simple, but not easy. This will take effort. And that's why he says to make every effort to add to our faith. See how the troubles are God loving us? These are opportunities to fulfill James 1 and count it pure joy and be made complete, lacking in nothing. But we have to take life back to the word and train ourselves. The greatest commandment is that we love God with our whole self because he loves us. He is constantly helping us grow in that love. He does that by giving us daily and lifelong opportunities to choose to trust and obey him. And our joy is to join him in that goal by being in the word and having the word in us. We do that by unpacking those opportunities, by bringing them to the word and training ourselves to see what's right and wrong. As we grow in love, as by, as by faith, we choose the good. Let me say that again. We grow in love as by faith we choose the good. So I want to finish by just asking three questions. Contemplate these and share what, you, what God shows you. Think about them and share them. Come to small group this week with a testimony of what God showed you. If you're not able to be in a small group, share it with those close to you. They're in your bulletin, and I'm simply going to read them. First question, do I recognize God's goal for me? Think about that. Do I recognize his goal for me? Second question, do I accept it as my own? Have I decided to follow Jesus and join with him in this adventure of being trained and changed? And third question, do I apply truth to my day? Or do I leave it in the theory? Let's pray. Lord, we cannot begin to thank you enough for how you love us every day. But Lord, help us to see you better every day. And as we see you better, help us love you more and more and better than we did yesterday. Help us trust and obey you better every day. Thank you for your word and for the spirit that is always ready to help us. We thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.